Well, today we have the distinct privilege of hearing God's word preached to us by Dr. Mike Fabares. He's our visiting professor this week for our GTC class on systematic theology. But when he's not teaching and preaching in Dubai, he's Pastor Mike, pastor of Compass Bible Church in Los Angeles, USA. Um, He's heard on radio stations throughout the U.S. through a radio ministry, has authored several books. Uh, But one exciting thing, just to have him here this morning, as we commission church plants, is he very much shares that same heart with Compass being a church that has planted churches uh, both in the U.S. and beyond. Um, So we're very encouraged by him coming to share God's work with with us this morning. For Lucas, for you joining us as well, thank you guys for being here. And uh, Bobby and Brad, I think you're somewhere in the room. Thank you for traveling with him. So Mike, why don't you join us on stage and let me pray for you. Let's pray. Father, as we come to hear your word, we, we pray that you bless your servant. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word such that we won't come to hear what we want to hear, but we would come to be changed by you would have us here. But let us hear from your word. Let us be pointed to Christ and our sufficiency in him and away from ourselves. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, Mike. Well, it is an honor this morning to be here. Thank you so much for your hospitality. It's been a great visit so far. I certainly do bring you greetings from Compass Bible Church and our daughter churches. We uh, certainly understand the challenges of church planning, and we sure appreciate the fact that you're doing exactly what we are doing over in our part of the of the world you're doing here, and we pray for God's blessing on you. Allow me this morning to have you recall a few people from your past, a very challenging teacher you had at school, a uh, real hard-nosed coach perhaps on a sports team that you played on, your dentist, a physical therapist after an injury that you had, an auditor that you hired for your company, Uh, a piano teacher when you were a kid, some of you perhaps, your doctor, a dietitian. Who are all these people? These are people that I'm sure at one time or another you thought they were mean and they had your pain as their goal, right? And yet you reflected on the fact that no, they weren't really out to hurt you, though there was pain involved in their involvement in your life. It was that they had your best interest in view. They were there in your life, though they were causing you pain, but they certainly wanted what is good in your life, and that was sometimes hard to remember. You had to remind yourself of that. Let me add one more name to that list. God. Oh, I wouldn't think that way about God. Well, a lot of godly people do. A lot of godly people have. We open the pages of scripture, we read of godly people like um, Moses even. I mean, loved God, intimate relationship with God, but there were times he said, I just can't take this anymore. If this is the way it's going to be, I, I, I don't even want to live anymore. Elijah. Lots of things that he wanted from God, God did not provide. Pains he wanted relieved, and at some point, just like Jonah, just like Jeremiah, he said, I've had enough. If this is how it's going to be, just, just kill me. 
Here's the honest and and transparent testimony of Scripture about godly people who really looked at God in one way or another and said, you know, this is really mean of you to do what you're doing. You know, the Bible says that when we, as Christians, are called to relate to the God that we spoke of in our songs, that we read of in our readings, as we prayed to in our prayers this morning, that we are to be people that are connecting with him in prayer all the time. We are to pray without ceasing. We are to, as Colossians says, be devoted to prayer and continue steadfastly in prayer. And all of us know that, but the problem with our prayer lives is that it's never going to be what it should be if we have a feeling in our heart that God just is mean. I ask for things and he doesn't provide them. I ask for relief and he doesn't give it. I want good things and I lay them before him and they don't happen. Another set of people you can add to that list is your parents when you were growing up. Probably no other pair of people in your life as a kid did you think at times you're mean. You just obviously don't like me. And yet, as you grow up, you recognize, I hope, that your parents did have your best interest in view, and you come to maturely look back on your parents parenting you, and though they weren't perfect, at least you've come to appreciate the fact that the things that they sometimes did weren't what you wanted, but they were for your good. Perhaps that being the most obvious set of people that we often think of as having our pain in view, but really have our good in view, Jesus employs that analogy for us when he gets us to think about our prayer lives. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Luke chapter 11 for some encouragement, I hope, and motivation for your prayer life so that you can leave this building today and begin to engage in prayer the way the Bible says that we ought to, continuing steadfastly in it, being watchful in it, praying regularly without ceasing, going into the inner room and praying to our Father in secret and making that the primary discipline of our Christian life beyond reading the scripture. This is the most important thing for us to commune with the living God is to have a vibrant prayer life. As a matter of fact, as you turn to Luke chapter 11, look at verse 10 before we read verses 11, 12, and 13, which is the passage I'd like for us to focus on this morning. If you glance at verse 10, there's the the promise that at one time, I suppose when you first read this or heard it preached to you, that to everyone who asks, he receives, and to the one who seeks, he finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. That was a very encouraging invitation from God's word. Just start asking. And that was motivating. But I suppose unless you're a brand new Christian, if you've been a Christian for more than a week, you got to the place where you realize, well, this doesn't seem to work. This verse isn't working in the way it's supposed to. Because I've asked and he hasn't responded. I've sought and I haven't found. I've knocked and the door was not opened. Well, just after that promise, in this passage, it is very strategic of Jesus to say, well, you need to think in terms of perspective. Let's read our passage this morning, verses 11 through 13. When he asks a question to the crowds and to us this morning, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, of course, no one's going to do that. If you then, being evil, you're sinful, you're fallen, you're, you're so far from perfect, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father 
I mean, he's the ultimate father, the perfect father, the non-evil father. He doesn't fall short on anything. If he is a good father to us, as we read in our passage this morning, that we can cry out to his Abba, Father, well, he certainly knows how to give good gifts. And he says, and he gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. This analogy is helpful for us, particularly when you're praying and you feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. You ask for things and he doesn't do them. You know they're good things. You think if God loves me and he has control over all things and he's sovereign, then why can't he just step in and fix this? Why won't he grant me the desire of my heart? Well, it begins for us in our passage this morning by thinking like a father and a child. Thinking as grown-up, mature people, listen, I understand this, that when a father has a son who asks for a fish, clearly he's not going to give him a snake to eat on. And if he wants an egg for breakfast, you don't hand him a scorpion and say, here, put this in your pocket. And yet the passage doesn't say, notice, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a fish. If he asks for an egg, you give him an egg. Well, we don't always give them what they ask for, but we clearly aren't giving them something for their hurt. And yet sometimes it feels that way. Most important thing for you to understand this morning is we think about the God that you're praying to and that we need to be praying to much more often than we do pray, is you need to affirm the goodness of God's love for you. Because I know in my mind, like your mind, you may say, if God loved me, he would give me what I'm asking for, but If you ask the question, how would God prove that he loves you, it wouldn't be by giving you everything you ask for any more than a child saying, how do I know my parents love me? It's not because they give me everything I ask for. And if I were to ask the question, how do I know God loves me? What would your biblical answer be to that? As Jesus said in John chapter 15, no greater love has any man than this, but that a man would lay down his life for his friends you lay down your life for me, I I guess that would be the ultimate expression of it. And that's one dimension of it, but think about how Romans chapter 5 puts it. It'd be one thing for you to say, well, I'm going to lay down my life for Mike Fabares. That would be an amazing sacrifice. But of course, in Romans chapter 5, it says, think about the fact that the Father demonstrates his love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ Who is that? His son dies for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Now I bet there's people here that find someone in their life they love so much they might lay down their life for. But it'd be hard to find someone in this room who would lay down their child's life for that person. Not to mention if they earn this title, as Romans 5 says, they're sinners. It'd be one thing to die for a great person. It'd be one thing to even imagine that possibly I might see my child suffer for the good of someone else, but that'd have to be a great person. And yet, the Bible says that's what God did in proving his love for you and I. You want to recharge your prayer life. You want to get back to the place where you're passionately, consistently, fervently praying as you should as a Christian. You've got to start by reestablishing in your own thinking that God desperately, dearly, ardently loves you, and he's proved it. He's proved it. He doesn't prove it by giving you everything you ask for, but he proves it by pointing you back to the cross where all the things that we celebrated this morning in our worship time, 
The fact that you are redeemed, even the name of your church, that you're purchased out of a situation that has nothing to look forward to but the penalty of your sin. It's as though you're tied to the railroad tracks and the train is coming toward you and you earn that spot and you're tied to that spot and you're caught in the web of what you've done and here comes the judgment you deserve. And that God, to that sinner, would say, I'll substitute your life for my son's life. The perfect one. Dying on a cross. Now think about that. Naked, hanging on a cross after being beaten and whipped which the Bible says is all about God, the Father, paying for your sin, having him absorb your penalty. Or put it this way, what do you deserve from a holy God for everything that you've ever done that falls short of his standards? How should God treat people who entertain lustful thoughts, who look at pornography, who lie, who cheat, who gossip, who deceive? God said, I'm going to treat my son as though he were that person. Treat my son as though he were the murderer. He were the most awful person you can think of. Not to mention all the things that we are, even though we think we're not as bad as the next guy. Can you imagine what a holy God would do if all of your sins were laid out? And he said, okay, what is my response to that? It's judgment. And that's the gospel, isn't it? That You and I can be redeemed and it's all based on the most fundamental commitment that God has to you and I. He loves us. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. God demonstrated his love toward you in this, that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. If I were to come over to your house after the service and take a look around and say, I I just want to upgrade you. You got a nice place here, but I'm going to invest a lot of money in you. I'm going to give you a great big place to live, great big house. Your car... I'm going to give you a new car, a great car, beautiful car, worth twice as much as the car you have now. I'm going to look at your new house that I've just purchased you, and I'm going to deck it out with all the greatest technology and all the greatest furniture. We're going to go shopping together. I'm going to lay down credit cards, and you're going to have that beautiful place, that beautiful house, that beautiful set of furniture. Then we're going to go shopping for clothes, and I'm going to buy whatever you want. That didn't excite us guys, but some of you gals might get excited about that. You're going to deck out these brand new walk-in closets I just got for you. Then we're going to sit down. We're going to have a meal. Let's say tonight, we're after all of that, I'm, I want breakfast for dinner, so we're going to have some pancakes. You've got your pancakes, i got my pancakes. The syrup is right next to me. I've just used it. And you say, pass me the syrup, please. And I put my hand on the syrup and I pull it close to my plate. And I say nothing. And I don't pass you the syrup. At that point for you to say, Mike is mean. He doesn't like me. I think that would be the most foolish thing you could say as you sit there on this beautiful dining room table I just purchased for you in your nice new clothes. See how immature for us to look at a God who's demonstrated his love for us in the most profound ways and to say, because he didn't give me that promotion, because I didn't get that job, because this relationship fell apart, because I've got a diagnosis of an illness and God didn't remove it, God must not love me. I know we may not say that out loud, but other godly people have. We've got to admit, sometimes we feel that way. Start this way. You want to recharge, rekindle your prayer life? Affirm that God loves you. 
Affirm that, know that, believe that, even when it doesn't feel like it, because you can look back in your mind's eye based on the scriptural picture of Christ dying for you, and there's no greater love than that. We're dearly loved, deeply loved. And the Bible says, Romans chapter 8, verse 32, if he didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Well, there's the rub. Why don't I get all these things I ask for? It's not because he doesn't love you. Look at our passage again. It says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a, a serpent? Or ask for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Let's just take that phrase and say, now wait a minute, I know sometimes I have asked for something good and it didn't come or he gave me something else and you're telling me it may not really be a serpent and it may not really be a scorpion but it slithers like one and it stings like one and one of the reasons we're not motivated to pray like we ought to is sometimes the answers we get from God, it stings a bit. Let's talk about that. How do we keep praying When God does not answer our prayers, I feel like my prayers are not only just bouncing off the ceiling, but when they bounce off the ceiling, they slap me in the face, and it doesn't feel at all like what I want from God. Well, it happens a lot. Have you ever prayed, for instance, when you are ill, or when you've been diagnosed with an illness, or maybe your family member has, and you've sat down and ardently, passionately said to God, please remove this illness from me? You ever prayed that way? It's not an interactive church, but smile at me if you've ever prayed that kind of prayer. You have, right? (laughs) Apostle Paul prayed that prayer. He had some kind of painful malady, some kind of illness that was so bad, he didn't say, well, I'm just feeling ill. He says, I am being buffeted by a, a messenger of Satan. Now, that's one thing. If you're sick, you may say, I'm under the weather. But if you say, I'm being attacked by a messenger of Satan, I think you're feeling really, really bad. And he says, I pleaded with the Lord. I didn't ask. I pleaded with the Lord that he might take it away. Three times I did that. And what did God, who dearly loved the Apostle Paul, what did he do? He said, no, not taking it away. He prayed three times. And you know why he only prayed three times? I think his theology was a lot better than ours because he was a lot quicker to recognize that God must have another plan a better plan. And he started to look for that plan and he saw it. By God's grace, he recognized this illness must be serving a good purpose. And when it comes to my position and privilege, I realize that good purpose and I can see that this was given to me for God's good purpose. And so I'm going to stop praying for this to go away and I'm going to say his grace is sufficient for me. And I'll realize there's something better in my life from God's perspective because he didn't answer that prayer. Now, when you're praying the 5th, the 12th, the 22nd time, maybe it's time for you to learn from godly men who realized that God loved them and said no to their prayers because God had a good plan that involved pain. I assume it's only a petulant, spoiled child who thinks that their parent should always do things that feel good and only respond to requests with happiness. And no one knows that better than Moses. Moses, of course, was leading the people of God. The whole point of that was to get to the promised land, this plan flowing with milk and honey, and that was the point. And while the people rebelled, and he had this whole generation die in the wilderness, you certainly expect 
the story of the wilderness wanderings to end with Moses leading the charge into the promised land and setting up his permanent residence there, and yet that's not what happened. Joshua and Caleb, they went in and led it, but Moses, he died on the other side of the Jordan River. Why is that? Do you know your Bible? Deuteronomy 3 says that God said, you're not going in. You're praying, you're praying, you're asking, you want it. It's a promise. I've promised it's going to happen, but you can't have it. As a matter of fact, this may be a new thought for you. God said to Moses, here, I'll just quote it for you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Stop praying about that. Just stop. If you really know your Bible, can you tell me why Moses was not allowed into the promised land? There was an incident with a rock and some water. It looked a lot like an earlier incident with some rock and and, and some water. And in front of all the people there of the congregation, Moses gets angry. God had clearly said to speak to the rock. He struck the rock. And he showed that really when it comes to God's commands, you know, if I'm not feeling like it or I have an emotional reaction to a situation, I can disregard the commandments of God and do what I feel. And God was angry with Moses. He said, you're not going to enter the promised land. He said, I'm sorry. I repent. Please let me in. And God said, no. God promised, and this is Deuteronomy 3 now. Think about it. He promised he's not going in. There's a lot of Deuteronomy left. What's going on from the time God promised you cannot enter the promised land and stop praying about it? Stop asking me about it. Well, there was lots of things that needed to happen. His brother died, Aaron. He had to prepare this next person in the priesthood. He had to set an example. He had to go through this situation with the king Balak hiring Balaam to come and prophesy against them. He had to respond to all of that, teach something to those people about the opposition that they were going to face. He had to deal with that bronze snake in the desert and raise that standard up to heal those people. He had to groom his understudy, Joshua, who was much younger than him, to take over the leadership of the nation. There was lots of things he had to do between him being told by God, you can't have what you're asking for because, pardon the pun, God didn't need a happy Moses. God needed a holy Moses. And that was what God was looking for. Moses was praying for something good to enter the promised land. God says, I can see there's a better agenda item in your life than your happiness right now. It's your holiness. Do you ever think about your unanswered prayers that way? How does this unanswered prayer make me holy instead of happy? God's priority, I can assure you, is that you're holy more than you're happy. Peter, remember that scene when Jesus says to Peter and the other disciples, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to you? Now I think about that day when Jesus told Peter that, what he woke up that morning praying about. Of course the pattern was Jesus go out early in the morning and pray by himself to his father. I'm sure the disciples got that pattern. I hope they tried to mimic that pattern. And I'm assuming that Peter must have gone out. Now I'm just imagining this. And he prayed for several things that morning. I wonder what was on his prayer list that day. And then he has an encounter later in the day with Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, I want to let you know what's going on. 
the ultimate arch enemy of heaven, Satan. He's got his sights on you and the other guys, and he wants to sift you guys like wheat. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it doesn't sound good, right? Sounds terrible. You're in the crosshairs of the enemy. Certainly, he knew the book of Job, and he knew that could end you know, a lot of your happiness for the day. And so he said, but take heart, I've prayed for you. I just wonder what kind of prayers Jesus was praying that morning when Peter was working through his prayer list that morning. Do you think those items were different? I guarantee you they were different. I wonder what you're praying for this week on your prayer list. I wonder how Jesus' prayer list for you looks different. Do you know why it might be different? Much like it was there in that passage in Luke 22, because Jesus sees the spiritual battles and what's coming in those spiritual battles that you don't see. And so it may be that some of the things on your prayer list, like Peter's, are just set aside. Listen, that's not important right now. What's important for what you're about to enter is that these things happen in your life, and those lists might not match up. And you may be praying for things that seem like they're bouncing off the ceiling, but you need to focus on the fact that I know what's best for you. And you may not be walking around in the first century with Jesus, but you do walk with Jesus, so to speak, and the person that walks with you is the person of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit is promised in Romans chapter 8 to pray according to God's will. He intercedes for us according to God's will. I like to think of it this way. When I'm praying for the wrong things, he's praying for the right things. Just like Jesus was praying for the right things for Peter. And sometimes those don't match up. And sometimes they need to say, if God doesn't answer my prayer list this morning, it's because God knows what's coming. You pray for a church plant this morning, do you not? What kinds of prayers do you pray for those? I bet they're all good and they're all reasonable. If you're a normal, Christ-loving Christian, you pray for all these wonderful things and maybe a lot of those things won't be answered. Maybe Jesus is praying for different things. The Spirit is interceding for different things and your prayers might not be answered about all the specifics of that because he sees something in the spiritual realm that you don't see. I have to trust him. Do you remember when... Lazarus dies. I know all you can think about when you think of the story of Lazarus is him being raised from the tomb. Of course we remember that. That's the dramatic part. But you know what led up to that in John 11? Mary and Martha, that was the, the, the family, the two sisters of Lazarus. They were beckoning Jesus to come and help their brother Lazarus. They wanted him to come. And if you read the story, you find out Jesus is delaying and he's not coming. Now, that's called unanswered prayer, is it not? Have you been sick or someone in your family has been sick or some urgent matter? You've got an urgent prayer request and Christ doesn't seem to be showing up on this deal. They wanted something urgently and Jesus says, I'm going to delay. You're looking to win the game. I've got something in the post game that's more important. This request is not going to be answered strategically and purposefully, purposefully because I've got something when that fails in that That demise, that defeat, I'm going to bring something good out of that. We can't always see God's good plan for how he's going to glorify himself in our defeat. My daughter uh, was born with a severe birth defect. Required brain surgery, spinal surgery, leg surgery, ankle surgery. You can imagine in that prenatal appointment when they saw the problems prenatally that we, our hearts were broke. What do you think we did? Christian people, pastor and his wife, we prayed. What did we pray? God, heal our daughter. 
God, don't let this be any permanent problem. Let it be something that just isn't going to affect her for the rest of her life. That was the game, if you will. The game was, God, we want a healthy child born right now. And we prayed and we pleaded. And our friends prayed and they pleaded. God wasn't interested in us seeing that prayer answered. We did not have a healthy baby. We had a baby that was rushed to neonatal ICU with surgeons cutting her open. And to this day, she is paralyzed from her knees down and has all kinds of medical issues. Because God wasn't interested in this situation in showing his glory, in seeing us win the game, if you will. He wanted to see us glorify him in the post-game. And that was much more important for his agenda for our family. Our prayers seemed like they hit the ceiling, but in reality, God had a better plan in our defeat to bring himself good. Israel and 1 Samuel 8 wanted a king. You know why they wanted a king? Because everyone else had a king. Do you ever pray for things because you know your contemporaries have things that you should have at this stage in your life? They're getting married. They're having children. They have good jobs. They have careers. I don't have those things. God, give me those things. Everyone else has those things. And God doesn't do it. Interesting in that passage, if you're reading through it in the ESV, the translators put a little heading over that. The editors put this heading over verse 19. The Lord grants Israel's request. That sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? It wasn't a good thing. It's a bad thing. They wanted something, and I suppose they whined so much, like those petulant, brat, bratty, spoiled children, that God said, fine, you want ice cream for breakfast? Eat five bowls of it. Right? And they end up throwing up before lunch. You need to recognize sometimes when we're praying for the 300th time for something that is not according to God's will and we should start to see that because all we're looking at is our happiness, our comfort, our peace, our relief and God's got holiness and better plans and glorifying himself in our defeat and and instead we need to start looking as we see in a passage like that and realize God's got better plans. God's got bigger priorities. God knows when he says no to our prayer requests he's got something else he's up to. Even Jesus prayed for things that didn't get answered. What? (laughs) Heretic? No, he did. Let this cup pass from me. In the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he went to the cross, he's about to be whipped and beaten by big, burly Roman soldiers. That's not something you and I would want to do tomorrow. He's going to be strapped up on this cross and nailed to it, naked before all the people including his friends. Can you imagine? All the paintings you've seen of Jesus on the cross are not accurate. Completely nude, hanging on a cross, bleeding, pummeled, his face hardly recognizable, his back filleted open, bleeding with splinters from the cross into his back. It was an awful sight, I can only imagine. Painters of the Renaissance period have not depicted it accurately. Jesus said, Father, is there some other way? Let this cup pass from me. But you know he had an addendum to that prayer. And what was it? Not my will, but yours be done. Do your prayers always have that addendum on on that? Do you pray that way? Do you hold your prayer list loosely? Do you have a sense where you walk into your prayer closet and say, Okay, God, here are my prayers. And I'm ardent about these prayers, but I hold them loosely. 
I'm passionate, I'm consistent, but I, I, I recognize, not my will, but yours be done. Just like those businessmen in James. I'm going to go here, I'm going to make a profit, I'm going to do that. I don't know what tomorrow holds. In the case of Christ, I've got something so much bigger that I'm going to accomplish by your unanswered prayer. And that's where we need to start to have faith. If Christ and Paul and Moses and Mary and Martha and God's beloved people asked and didn't get, then we need to keep asking and recognize that when it comes to unanswered prayers, we need to adjust our prayers, adjust our expectations, and recognize God does love me and he's doing good even in our unanswered prayers. If unanswered prayer has led you to pray less, I'm just telling you, not because God doesn't love you, it's not that he's not attentive. We sing songs when we pray to him, he hears our cry. He does. But you need to realize that sometimes when it feels like he just handed us a serpent or a scorpion, you know, he's, he's a God who gives good gifts. How does our passage end? We know how to give good gifts to our children, even though we don't give them everything they ask for. But it says here at the bottom of verse 13, look at it. How much more will the Heavenly Father give, I didn't expect this phrase, the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He didn't even talk about the things we did, the good thorn, the good discipline, the good protection, the good deliverance, the better priorities, this big thing that God might be doing through unanswered prayer, but it says he'll give you the Holy Spirit if you ask for him. There is a promise of what he will give every time. Well, that's not what I want. I want my daughter not to be paralyzed. I want this disease to go away. I don't want that cancer diagnosis to be true. I I don't want that, that project that's so good to collapse. I don't want these good plans of church planning to fall apart. That's what I want. But the Bible says, no, but you get the Holy Spirit. You get the Holy Spirit. Of course, the Bible in this amazing triune fellowship of the God that is, is very complicated, I understand. It says the Father dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Even as he's depicted in Revelation 4 and 5, there's something just like unimaginable about this God who's enthroned in heaven. And Jesus comes, he's embodied the incarnation, and then he goes back in bodily form to sit at the right hand of the Father. And so there, in, a, in one sense, they're there, they're distant. But he says, I'll be with you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans because I'm going to send my spirit. And my spirit will be with you. Now here's the final thing I've got to say to you. When it comes to honor answered prayers, if we're feeling unmotivated to pray, our prayers are hitting the ceiling. You may not get anything on your list, but I know you get this. You get God's presence. And if you've got God's presence, you may not have what you want, but you have what you need. And you need to learn to want what you have. And what you have is God. The Bible is so clear about this. It changes everything about our disposition. We don't sit around saying, well, I don't get what I want, so I'm going to be this sullen, spoiled, frustrated kid. I didn't have what I want. I guess I can't have what I want, but I got God. Well, here's how it's put in Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it. Rejoice. Now, Paul's writing from prison to the Philippians. And then he tells them this in the next verse. Let your, and it's a hard word to translate into English, but it says reasonableness in the ESV. Epiakis is this Greek word that if you looked it up and saw the breadth and the variety of this word has to do with this ability to endure a situation that's hard, to do it calmly, to do it with dignity, to do it with a, with a kind of peace in your heart. Let that reasonableness, that, that forbearance, that ability to sit there and, and to be joyful and fine with it, let it be evident to everyone. And here's the next phrase. For the Lord is near. 
You can be in prison, Paul. It may not be where you want to be. You want to be on the mission field and you want to be preaching, but you're stuck here in in prison under house arrest. Be at peace and rejoice. God's working out a better plan. You're not getting your prayers answered, at least not the immediate prayers for release, but God's with you. Remember when Silas and Paul were in that dungeon in Philippi, speaking of, of the Philippians? At midnight, they had been beaten. They were in stocks. They weren't under house arrest. They were chained up. And what were they doing at midnight, do you know? Singing praises and hymns to God. Rejoice in the Lord. Let your epiachus, let your reasonableness, your calmness, your ability to endure be known to everyone. Why? Because the Lord is near. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, You may be sorrowful. Well, everything I pray for is so that I won't be. But you might be, yet you'll always be rejoicing. You might be poor. Well, I'm praying that I'll have my needs met. But you may not have a lot of your needs met. Well, yet you're always making many rich. Well, how can I do that? I have God. I got the gospel. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. There's a good memory verse for you this week. 2 Corinthians 6.10 As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing Everything. Why? Because I got God. Hebrews 13, 5. Your pastor quoted Hebrews 13 earlier in that passage. It says you got to be content. You got to be able to be content with what you have and what you don't have. What gets answered on your prayer list and what doesn't get answered on your prayer list. For he has said, I will never leave you and I'll never forsake you. We have an omniscient, wise, listening God to whom we pray. We sang about it. We don't doubt that. There's no room for us to be frustrated or anxious. We've got God. I was probably in second grade, seven years old. We were making a trip in the summer across the United States to see my mother's family in a little GMC uh, green pickup truck with a camper shell on the back. We'd all sleep in the back. We had some camping equipment. One day we were having some car trouble. It was the end of the day, so we pulled into this campground in Texas. And this little dusty, simple, paltry campground. We couldn't get the truck started. Spent the night trying to get things working, couldn't. We all went to bed, we woke up. I've got one older brother. My dad figured out we needed a part for the truck to make it work. Very resourceful, figured it out. Went to this phone booth that they had there at the campground. Had a phone book in it, phone directory. He opens it up. He finds an auto parts store. He realizes it's only about a mile and a half away. He goes to the front of that phone directory. He sees a map. This is before cell phones and GPSs and all that that we have, you know. And he says, I know how to get there. Let's do this. So he says to my older brother, you stay with mom. And he said to me, the little kid, you're coming with me. Let's walk. So I go and think we're going to walk down the street. And he goes, no, we're going to walk across the desert. Because he looked at this map and he realized it was a long way out of the way to go all the way down to the corner and all the way over. And it's the middle of this desolate place. We're a little tiny campground. But we're going to walk to where this little town is. And where the town is, there's an auto parts store. We can get what we need. We can go. And we're walking through the desert. I was a city kid from Southern California. I'd never walked through a desert before. Sandbox maybe, but not a desert. And it was early in the morning, and I was walking with my dad. One thing you should know about my dad, my dad back in the day was a a burly, strong police officer. He 
was a police officer in Long Beach, California. He was one of these tough cops, big cops, worked out, strong. It's the kind of cop that didn't just carry a big gun on his belt. He had one in his sock. He had one in his back, you know. He probably had one in his neck somewhere. I don't know. He had, he had weapons everywhere, knives, you know. This guy was a, a, you know, a scary fighting machine. But he was my dad. And so we were walking through the desert. I'm a little uncomfortable, and I got even more uncomfortable when on the horizon I started to see this really weird building with barbed wire and towers. And it was the Latuna Correctional Facility. It was a prison. Now, I'd never, I mean, I'd seen prisons on TV before. I'd never been to a prison. I'd never seen a prison. I'd never been up close to a prison. And we're walking through, I mean, picture it, just like a desert with nothing but sand. And then on the horizon here, there's this building. And I get closer and I recognize that this is a prison. I said, Dad, what's that? It's a prison. It's where the bad people go. Well, I'm walking a little closer to my dad at that point. I'm scared. Then I got to a place outside the gates as we were to walk past that that I'd never seen before. It's called a pauper's cemetery. It's where when the people in prison, when they have life sentences and they die and no one wants to claim the body, they take them out the back of the, of the penitentiary, they put them in this little graveyard. I mean, there's no flowers, there's no headstones, there's just little tiny markers and these little plots. And So I'm walking by dead people, dead criminal people. I'm waiting for one of them to bounce out of the ground and grab my neck, and I was just really scared. And yet I recognize, as I'd much rather go back and play checkers with my brother in the camper, I didn't have anything that I wanted, and I wasn't where I wanted to be. I was in a desert in a very scary situation. But I had my dad. And though I felt at seven probably that I was too old for it, I remember reaching up and grabbing my dad's hand. He probably like, what's going on with you? Just glad you're here. The Bible says, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we'll fear no evil. You know why? For you're with me. Your rod and your staff, your knives and your guns, they comfort me. I'm glad you have those. And even in that passage, do you remember the passage... You prepare before me this table in the presence of my enemies. You know what I'm praying for? All my enemies will be zapped. I don't want my enemies around. I don't want them on the horizon. I don't want them anywhere. He doesn't answer that prayer, though. But I got him, and I got fellowship with him. As Jesus said to the church, dine with me, sup with me, have dinner with me. Yeah, but can you zap all these people? No, 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 just right here. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. Surely goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life. Why? Because I'll never leave you, never forsake you. I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Where we're going, we're going to get there. I'm going to reach up my hand and I'm going to grab God. And he says, you want me, I'm going to give it to you. You want me, I'm going to give it to you. You ask for the spirit, you're going to get it. You'll have my presence. You may not have everything on your prayer list. But God's working good plans, don't doubt him. You need to get back to being committed to steadfastly continuing in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. We need to pray. If your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, don't despair. Trust God. Grab his hand. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, don't fear any evil. Don't get frustrated. God is with you. Let's pray. God, help us to affirm that truth in our lives. Understand that for us, 
if we're honest, we can see in the mirror of your word some immaturity. As we're tempted, like a lot of godly people have been, Moses, Jeremiah, Jonah, Elijah, to get mad at you because we think you're mean to us because you don't do what we ask. God, we know that you did say, ask, you'll receive, seek, you'll find, knock, the door will be opened to you. And then you had to remind us, well, that doesn't mean every little thing we ask for, you give us. As a matter of fact, many things we ask for, even some big things that seem to us so important, you don't answer the way we want. And it's not because you don't love us, you prove that. Because you've got better plans. You love us more than we can imagine. And if all else fails and we think, man, this is, this is so many things that, that are denied us, let us remember that the one specific promise that you've told us you will answer every time is any person on this planet in repentance and faith reaching out to you saying, I want your presence, I want your spirit, you give it. There are many people here in this room that have asked for that. And they sit with that spirit in their lives that is promised to be like a seal, a promise of our redemption. We walk through this life with you. Let us be able to say with our prayer list, not my will, but yours be done. Let us pray more this week, more ardently, more consistently, and to pray without ceasing, even when we feel like our prayers aren't answered. In Jesus' name, amen.